you know, I'm not naive about this process. I've worked in this process for 30 years. There's always been politics in this process. But what has happened here in the past year and a half is a new twist. Just trust me. I'm a nice guy. I say I'm a fair judge. Trust me, confirm me, and then you'll have 40 years to figure out whether I was telling the truth. Hi, and welcome to another special edition of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts and the law for Slate. Now, it doesn't happen all that often that a U.S. Supreme Court confirmation hearing turns out to be only the fourth most urgent news story on Capitol Hill in a week. But between Jim Comey, the fight over health care, meltdown in the House Intelligence Committee, you may have missed a little bit of the nuance of the four-day marathon hearing we just had for Neil Gorsuch. Well, never fear, friends. We at Slate sat through the whole damn thing so you didn't have to. And we are delighted to bring you this bonus episode of Amicus to review it. Joining me today are Mark Joseph Stern. He also covers the law and the courts for Slate. Hey, Mark. Hi, Dahlia. And we are delighted to welcome for the first time on the show Ron Klain. He served as a senior White House aide to both Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. He oversaw Clinton's judicial nominations. He directed judicial selection efforts, and he led the team that won confirmation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. Ron, welcome to Amicus. It is a thrill to have you here. It's a thrill to be here. I'm going to ask you guys the simplest question uh, that I was asked in every radio hit I did this week. Uh, given the sort of lose-lose setup for this proposition for Democrats, uh, did anyone on the Democrat side win? Uh, was there a win? Uh, given that uh, Judge Gorsuch pretty much looked lovely and kind, and that was the only issue seemingly before uh, the committee, uh, did Democrats lay a glove on him, and you start, Ron. Well, look, I think that um, some of the Democrats did quite well. It, these hearings have uh, morphed from being really genuine question and answer sessions into something more like oral argument at the Supreme Court, where the senators are asking questions but really making arguments in the form of questions. And I thought that in that regard, if you think about it that way, I thought uh, Senator Franken did a really good job of laying out the case against Judge Gorsuch on a number of points. I thought Senator Globuchar as well really made a kind of comprehensive case against him. Uh, Chris Coons pointed out some of the inconsistencies and in some of his views and approaches. Uh, Senator Leahy laid some good bear traps too. So uh, I don't think uh, the hearings were a success in terms of learning anything new about Judge Gorsuch that we didn't know before they started. But I do think they laid the groundwork for growing Democratic opposition to his nomination. And of course, the hearings ended with an announcement from Chuck Schumer that he would be leading a filibuster against Judge Gorsuch. So if you're a Gorsuch opponent, the hearings uh, seem to rally the cause against his confirmation. Mark, do you feel that – I guess I should just uh, betray my own feeling, which is if the Democrats were going to filibuster, why show up at all? And you sort of lose by even having a four-day debate about the merits. Uh, we were never going to get to the merits, and so why show up? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that assessment a bit more than Ron's. I mean, I think that Ron is definitely right that Franken and Klobuchar – 
uh, and White House especially got in some really good uh, questions and a few political points maybe uh, that they can take home and run around with and say, look how well I did. Um, and, you know, in the future when Gorsuch issues some horrible ruling on employment law or, you know, whatever, they can say, look, we knew he was going to do this and we warned you. But beyond that, I'm not sure how effective any of the questioning was uh, because, like you said, they were still there. They showed up. They wore nice clothes. They were polite. They called him Judge Gorsuch. You know, they did all of this stuff that you're supposed to do for a real, genuine, legitimate Supreme Court uh, nominee, uh, which, of course, Republicans refused to do for Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. And so just by showing up and doing all of that uh, courteous stuff, I think they sort of surrendered the moral high ground that they still attempted to cling to throughout the hearings, where they would sporadically bring up Garland, talk about what an injustice it was, uh, and then just flip back back to Gorsuch uh, and continue as though, yeah, it was an injustice, but now we have to move on. So I think overall, you know, there were some really nice moments. We can talk about them. It was, it was occasionally fun to watch. But for the most part, just by sitting through all four days, going through the motions, they kind of lost. Well, can I disagree with that a little bit? I mean, as I said at the outset, I think that you have to see these as like like oral argument in court where the senators are speaking to their colleagues uh, in the public to some extent. And uh, ultimately, the test for the Democrats is can they put up 41 votes against invoking cloture and can they hold their team together? And I think that to do that, I think it was important for the Democrats to come to the hearing and make a case against Judge Gorsuch's confirmation. Uh, which they did, I think, by and large, and I think pretty effectively. And so I think that um, if they had not come, uh, I think that would have created more of a divide among the Democrats and probably might well have taken the right side of the caucus and given them more of an excuse to vote with the Republicans on this cloture vote. I think now they've laid a groundwork to hopefully be unified and to uh, stand up against his confirmation um, with uh, with some of the the, the, the less aggressive senators on the Democratic side rallying behind and being persuaded by some of the arguments that were made. I, th I think I agree with you, Ron, although I would say for me, the sort of emblematic moment of these hearings was the testimony, the introduction on the very first day, uh, Barack Obama's acting solicitor general, Neil Cadial, got up to introduce the nominee. And I thought what he said really highlighted the tension that the Democrats were going to have to struggle with. And he more or less said, look, not uh, having a hearing for Garland, not seating Garland is sort of an existential wound, right? It's like a bruise. But... If we're going to get over it, you know, here's a good guy to get over it with, ladies and gentlemen, Neil Gorsuch. And I thought that that tension of we're affronted, this is horrifying, uh, you know, we, we can't even sit here because it's appalling, but let's get to, you know, his record on uh, reproductive rights. I thought that that was such a confusing message that the now even the conversation about a filibuster. I'm not even sure if Democrats know whether they're filibustering Ron because of his record or because of the existential wound that is Merrick Garland. Yeah, or see all of the above. Look, Neil Kajil is a big advocate for this nomination. He wrote an op-ed the day Judge Gorsuch was nominated, uh, you know, calling for his confirmation, and it's his right to do that. But he certainly was not certainly not advocating a, a point of view of the Senate Democrats, the Democratic Caucus, on this. And I think, you know, some people um, will oppose Judge Gorsuch because of 
what happened to Judge Garland. Some will oppose him because of his views. Uh, you know, in the end, I, I think that uh, really doesn't matter how they get there, you know, just that they get there. So let me ask you both this question, because this is the other thing that I think is is probably at the forefront of people's minds. And that is, I think we can stipulate, and, and I've seen at least some work done on this, that Judge Gorsuch actually talked less about doctrine, about case law precedent than folks who'd come before, than John Roberts, than uh, Elena Kagan, then Justice Kennedy. And if we can all agree that he and I think you wrote about this in your colloquy, uh, Ron, with Hugh Hewitt this week, the strategy of saying close to nothing about doctrine, about law means that the only thing left to talk about is, are you a good person? Right. I mean, character. That's all that's left on the table. Is that just going to be a disaster. I mean, that was a disaster for Justice Alito because it ended up being a referendum on are you a racist? It was a disaster for uh, Sonia Sotomayor because it was like, are you you know prejudiced against uh, white men? Every time we turn this into a referendum on character and goodness of heart, the nominee comes out looking either like a monster or like they've been wronged. This seems like the worst possible framing. And it happened again where all the Republicans on the committee were like, why are you saying he hates children with autism? You're attacking him. That can't be the smart way through this, right? Yeah. Look, I think that um, we have two things going on here. One is it's always a challenge to try to have these confirmation hearings about these complicated issues of law and constitutional law and not have it become a big debate about um, kind of the results of the cases and, uh, you know, does Judge Gorsuch care about frozen truckers and children with autism and all these things. And and that, that that's, as you say, is the same problem when the Republicans were going after Kagan and, um, and Sotomayor. And, and that's just an advantage that all these nominees have in the process. But something has changed. And what has changed, as you alluded to, Dahlia, is that the nominees have, have just progressively given less and less in the way of answers to these questions. Um, you know, the Republicans like to cite the Ginsburg rule, which is something Judge Ginsburg said in her nomination where she said, you know, I'm not, uh, confirmation hearings where she said, I'm not going to give any hints, any tips as to how I would rule in cases. But Judge Ginsburg spent many hours before the committee answering in-depth questions about her work as a lawyer, her academic writing, she discussed the Madison lectures at length where she laid out an equal protection theory for a woman's right to choose. She put her work at the ACLU before the committee and said, judge me by these briefs. And, and each time I think nominees have kind of have kind of peeled back less and less and less to where, uh, you know, uh, Judge Roberts, then Judge Roberts, uh, said basically, you can't can't like read my opinions, you can't read my briefs. I was just a lawyer. None of this stuff counts. And and I think that as a result, to the extent these hearings have any purpose at all, uh, the purpose really is for the senators to have a platform to lay out their views, lay out their case, kind of speak to their colleagues, speak to the public to some extent. Uh, they aren't really producing uh, usable, meaningful, interesting insights about what kind of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch would be. And Mark, do you agree that if the only issue on the table is, hey, he seems like a nice guy, I like his heart, uh, that we are just setting this up for what looked to be four days of, you know, people opining about, are you nice, Judge? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why Democratic senators spent so long talking about these two cases, uh, the frozen trucker case and the autistic child case, um, because they were the only two cases or two of the very few cases where Democrats felt that they could glean from uh, Judge Gorsuch's ruling something about his personality, that he's cold, he's callous, uh, he doesn't care about the little guy. Uh, and I think that came across as absurd to lawyers. I think both of us thought it was pretty silly. Um, but you know, I think that Democrats felt that they were sort of painted into a corner there, and it was the only way they could score a point uh, on that front because it had become a referendum on whether Judge Gorsuch is like someone that you'd want to go to a trampoline park with. Um, it just felt very silly, uh, but it felt like perhaps all that they could do. And my question is whether it helps or hurts Gorsuch uh, throughout uh, the next few steps, because to me, he came across as really smug and arrogant. As he said, over and over again, I refuse to give any kind of insight into any substantive views on the law that I may or may not hold. You're just going to have to confirm me to hold life tenure on the highest court in the land and the most, most powerful court in the world, really, uh, and then figure it out from there. You know, just trust me. I'm a nice guy. I say I'm a fair judge. Trust me, confirm me, and then you'll have 40 years to figure out whether I was telling the truth. Right. The big-hearted robot of likability. Yeah, was... but but here, but he, can, this I think bends back to the very first conversation we had, the first part of this, which is, did the hearings serve any purpose? Did the Democrats get anything out of them? And I actually think, and I wrote this um, in my piece in the Post, I actually think the White House miscalculated here, and I think Judge Gorsuch will pay a price for uh, really saying nothing, admitting nothing, offering nothing. I think that this argument that he answered no questions, he told us nothing, is going to give uh, a framework for the more conservative members of the Democratic caucus to uh, vote against Judge Gorsuch and and uh, vote uh, with the Democrats filibustering Judge Gorsuch because I think it's a nice neutral principle for them uh, to stand behind. And I think that uh, – I think he overplayed his hand here and I think his interactions – uh, with uh, some of the senators that were a little terse and really, uh, you know, just harshly non-answering, uh, I, I think that is going to be a rallying point inside the Democratic caucus and will help unify the Democrats against Gorsuch. So, Ron, I want to ask you this because I feel like I've heard you talk about this and I've talked about this. I think we've even argued about it over the years. I, I'm not a big fan of the little guy framing, uh, and I'm not a big fan of it in, in large part because it's easy to answer, which is, you know, every Republican responds to that by saying, "Are do you go in with preconceived ideas that, you know, because of someone's wealth or status, they should win? Right. It's too easy to flip it into this isn't neutral. This is bias. And I don't know how much the idea that, you know, liberal judges are meant to have a big thumb on the scale for the little guy has meaning and resonance for people. I think it may feel as though it's simply bias and it's so easy to skate past it. 
Maybe the quintessential little guy in these hearings invoked time and time again is trucker, frozen trucker, Al Madden. In very, very condensed form, he uh, decides because it's freezing and his truck is broken to go against company policy and ditch his cargo and take the cab of the truck for which he is later fired. Uh, Judge Gorsuch, writing in that case, sides against the trucker, even though, as we hear time and time again, it's entirely possible that Al Madden would have died of hypothermia had he abided by his company policies. He becomes the symbol of the heartlessness of Judge Gorsuch. Let's listen to Al Franken really tee off on him about the frozen trucker. The rest of the judges all go, that's ridiculous. He shouldn't. You can't fire a guy for doing that. It was it was there were two safety issues here. One, the possibility of freezing to death or driving with that rig in a very, very undangerous, very dangerous way. Which would you have chosen? Which would you have done, Judge? Oh, Senator, I don't know what I would have done if I were in his shoes, and I don't blame him at all for a moment for doing what he did do. Um, but, I, em- but, but, I empathize with him entirely. Okay, just you've, we've been talking about this case. Don't you? Don't, you haven't decided what you would have done. You haven't thought about for a second oh, what you would have done Senator, in this case. I, I thought a lot about this case because. And I, what would you have done? I totally empathize and understand. I'm asking you a question. Please answer questions, Senator. I don't know. I wasn't in the man's you, shoes, but I understand you why. You don't he know did. what you would have done. Okay, I, I tell you what I would have done. I would have done exactly what he did. Yeah, I understand. And I think everybody here would have done exactly what he did. And I think that's an easy answer. Frankly, I don't know why you had difficulty answering that. So let's start with you, Mark. Uh, d- does does Franken really score points by getting Judge Gorsuch to say, you know, the truth is I would have gotten out of the truck if I was freezing too? Or is this just kind of playing on heartstrings and and and? F- feeding the idea that the Republicans on the committee are so bound by that judges don't let their hearts intervene. This is about law. Law is law. Well, I think he scored political points, and I think he scored emotional points for sure, because it's a very sad case, and Gorsuch reached uh, the wrong conclusion, not just legally, but also like morally, right? It's just a sort of disgusting thing to say that this poor frozen trucker should have basically let himself die, and that the fact that he didn't was grounds for his termination. Um, on the other hand, I, I did not find that exchange exceedingly persuasive on legal grounds because Gorsuch's uh, decision, his dissent from that ruling, was, you know, it was not this utterly callous, disgusting uh, refusal to recognize the trucker's humanity. It was just a statutory interpretation decision where he came out the other way, and honestly, his clerk probably wrote it, and he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And, you know, you can definitely use that against him, uh, and most people are not going to think about it that way. Uh, but I found the much more compelling Franken point to be when he talked about the series of 5-4 uh, decisions by the Roberts Court, uh, really crushing consumers' rights uh, in, in cases like AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion from 2011, uh, a case that not many people know about, but that was just 
an excellent illustration of how the current court's conservatives, they don't have a thumb on the scale for the little guy. They aren't neutral. They have a thumb on the scale for the big guy, and they are willing to depart from all of their usual doctrines of statutory interpretation in order to read the penumbras and emanations of a really old uh, federal law in order to prevent a state like California from protecting consumers and protecting consumers' rights to launch class actions against scammy companies. Uh, that was basically the holding in Concepcion, and, and it was ridiculous and absurd and crushed uh, a lot of types of class actions in this country. Uh, and so I thought that was a really strong point that Franken made, but he somewhat muddled it. He didn't quite get the law right, and he didn't get it out nearly as well as he did get out all the facts of the frozen trucker case. So I was a bit puzzled as to why he devoted so much of his time to this one case that almost literally every other Democratic senator talked about, uh, and not the cases where you have demonstrable evidence of the Supreme Court's conservatives putting a thumb on the scale for the big guy in an effort to crush the little guy because their friends own businesses and they like corporations more than workers and consumers. So, Ron, that, let me ask you the thing that Mark just said that I think is interesting is Democrats win when they talk about, you know, when judges are on the side of big corporations. Democrats may not win when they talk about individual plaintiffs because, as I said, maybe it opens the door to saying, what, you just want us to be biased? Thoughts on the frozen trucker exchange? Was that a big win for Franken? I think it was. Look, I mean, there are two sides to this, right? And obviously, you know, Judge Gorsuch in that case ruled for a big trucking company. I think it's a, a specific illustration of Mark's broader point, which I absolutely agree with about the decisions of the Roberts Court and an effort to kind of take that and connect that to one of Judge Gorsuch's decisions. John Roberts isn't sitting before the committee right now. Judge Gorsuch is. And, you know, one of the challenges, I will say, from working for the Senate Judiciary Committee, working for senators, helping them get ready for this is you have to play the cards you're dealt. And uh, courts of appeals decide a lot of really super boring and uninteresting cases. And if you're going to try to get people's attention, get people to focus on these things, you sometimes need to use these cases with colorful facts and to try to illustrate the point. Now, I mean, obviously, there may well have been better ways to do it and may well be link what uh, Franken was arguing there with some of the, the points about the Roberts Court that Mark was making. But, you know, by and large, I think uh, what Senator Franken's trying to do, and I thought what he did pretty effectively, is make the point Mark was making, which is that we have now increasingly a federal judicial system that sides with, you know, big corporate interests against consumers and individuals. And I think this particular case, the trekking case, is just an illustration of that. So I wonder if that can segue into what I thought was the most interesting uh, exchange of the hearing, and that was Sheldon Whitehouse going back and forth with the nominee on this question of, you know, we have a consistent 5-4 Roberts split where not only do they side uh, with corporate interests, but they're siding with corporate interests to promote, you know, dark money, corruption, a complete monstrous change of the system. Let's listen for a minute to that exchange and see if it maybe lands in a way that's more effective. Here's a live example right now. We have uh, this $10 million that is being spent on behalf of your confirmation. Um, do you think, for instance, that we on this panel uh, ought to know who is behind that? And 
Well, answer that, and then I'll go on to a related question. Senator, that's a policy question for this body. Well, it's also a question of disclosure. You could ask right now that as a matter of um, courtesy, as a matter of respect to the process, that uh, anybody who is funding this should declare themselves so that we can evaluate who is behind this effort. Senator. Right? That wouldn't be a policy determination. That would be your values determination. It would be a politics question. And I'm not, with all respect, Senator, going to get involved in politics. And if this body wishes to pass legislation, that's a political question for this body. And there's ample room for this body to pass disclosure laws for dark money or anything else it wishes to. It can be tested in the courts. So, Senator, with all respect, the ball's in your court. Do you really think that a Supreme Court that decided Citizens United doesn't get involved in politics? So, so let me ask you this question. This was a big theme throughout the hearing, which was, hey, I just decide the law. Congress, you want to protect the little guy, you fix it, right? You pass better laws for uh, students with autism. You pass better campaign finance laws. You pass more disclosure laws. Uh, it's a little bit of a trick, right? Because, of course, we had McCain-Feingold. Congress passes these laws. So to suggest that the ball is in your court seems, I mean, it's very persuasive rhetorically, but, huh? Yeah, to me, Talia, I agree with um, this being kind of the most important and telling exchange of the hearing on a number of levels. First of all, it's borderline deceptive by Judge Gorsuch to say, okay, Congress, you go ahead and pass some law when he wouldn't answer, by the way, later if he would vote to uphold such a law. And in fact, Justice Thomas has said such laws are unconstitutional. So, um, you know, as a, as a doctrinal matter here, there is a big elephant in the room about whether or not if Congress passed such a law, which of course is not going to happen with Republican Congress, Judge Gorsuch wouldn't then turn around and vote to strike down such a law. So let's let's put that aside for a second. You know, more fundamentally, I think the the, the most underreported thing that's happened around this nomination um, is the fact that Senator Whitehouse alluded to, which is the the enormous spending of dark money to first block the Garland nomination and then advocate the Gorsuch nomination. I think when it's all racked up, when this is all over, we're going to see $30 million having been spent to block Garland and get Gorsuch confirmed. And you know that's really a politicization of this process that almost turns our Supreme Court nomination process into a state court judicial election with special interest spending money and trying to get their people elected. And that's a that's a real turn in the process. And I think, you know, if you take a step back here and you and you you look at where this is headed, um, you know, why does that kind of money get spent to block Merrick Garland and get uh, Neil Gorsuch confirmed? Because there are obviously special interests and big moneyed interests that have a stake in the outcome of 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 this. And I think in the future, presidents will know that if they want their nominees confirmed, uh, you know, they're going to have to pick people who appeal to those special interests. And I think more and more you're going to see the Supreme Court become like the House of Representatives wearing black robes. You know, basically, uh, you know, Democrats have to pick people that rally their base and that draw in huge special interest money and huge advocacy money to get their people confirmed. Republicans do the same thing on their side. And, you know, more and more this gets more political and looks more and more like our Congress. And, you know, that shift here, uh, that acceleration in the process towards politicization, towards fundraising money, 
TV ads. I think this. I think we will look back on the Gorsuch nomination as a big landmark in the in that pathway. Ron, I think this ties back to a point that you made really well in your recent um, piece with Hugh Hewitt where you, you mentioned that Republicans are constantly alleging that it was Democrats who corrupted the Supreme Court nomination process uh, by borking Bork uh, and then with the Thomas allegations. And whatever the merits of those claims, I think that we can all agree that what's happening now is materially different from what happened then. You know, with Bork, it was a very, uh, very far-right judge um, being held uh, to account, you know, by, by citing his own views back to him and possibly exaggerating. We could debate that forever. Uh, with Thomas, it was these very serious allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, and then after that, we had a number of pretty easy confirmations, uh, followed by eventually uh, the Alito confirmation, uh, the Kagan and Sotomayor confirmation, which became fairly political, uh, especially on the Republican side, then Garland and this, which feel to me just completely different uh, in, the, in the political calculus, because for the very first time, we have outside groups spending a fortune to block one nominee and put another on the Supreme Court for like four decades. So I, I just thought that was a terrific point. And I think that White House's exchange cuts to the core of that, that there is something going on here, something that is very new and something that I think should be uh, raising alarm bells for pretty much everybody. Yeah, I mean, I obviously agree with that. And I'd add one other point, which is Judge Gorsuch says he doesn't know who those donors were. And I'll I'll take him in his word, but tomorrow or the next day or at some party the White House throws for him, if he gets confirmed, five people could walk up to him and say, hey, I'm the guy who wrote the $5 million check. And we'll never know that. And we'll never know if he recuses in cases that involve those people. We'll never know if he's ruling on their interests directly or indirectly because we'll never know who they are and he may well. And so I think at the very least – uh, the senator should come back and written questions and demand that he uh, assure them that if he ever finds out who these donors are, that he put that on the record, that it recused from cases that involve those folks and their interests. I think that's that's like the bare minimum, the bare bones minimum that needs to happen here. But I think Mark's bigger point is the more important point, the one I was trying to make before, which is – you know, I'm not naive about this process. I've worked in this process for 30 years. There's always been politics in this process. I'm not naive about the Supreme Court. You know, I worked on Bush v. Gore. I saw a 5-4 to decision to hand the presidency to, to the Republican candidate for president. But what has happened here in the past year and a half is a new twist. I think it'll be interesting to see what the final vote on Judge Gorsuch is. You know, we've never really had a straight, pure straight party line vote on these Supreme Court nominees. There are always some people on one side or the other side. Uh, the break of the, in the Bork nomination, six Republican senators voted against Judge Bork. A uh, number of Democratic senators voted for Judge Alito. Um, this may be the low watermark or the high watermark, if you will, for the partisanization and the politicization of the process. And, and it's I, I want to put in one red flag here because I do think and I, and I say this as somebody who's been saying volubly for a year that, you know, it's bad to politicize the courts, that eight justices isn't enough, that when Ted Cruz said uh, in the fall, hey, we'll keep the court open, you know, that seat open for, for four more years if Clinton wins uh, and how dare 
damaging that is, that it is damaging on both sides, because in the end, it just damages the court. Let's be really clear. This isn't a DR fight, right? This is a fight about an institution that only has as its source of authority public legitimacy, and that when you break that, you break it for everyone going forward. I just think it has to be really manifestly clear that what Gorsuch is saying, which is, you know, the court is mostly unanimous, that it's eight to one most of the time, please don't turn this into, you know, who was appointed by a Republican and who was appointed by a Democrat. It's so much purer than that. He's right in some sense. He's right. Where he's wrong is when he says, I'm exactly the same as Merrick Garland, except I get to be here and he doesn't, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I do think that um, uh, obviously a lot of cases of the Supreme Court are are not controversial, not ideological, and there will continue to be unanim- some unanimous decisions and some eight ones and seven twos and whatnot. It's all true. But the controversial decisions, the decisions, the 50, 40, 50 decisions a year where the court is highly divided, you know, they have to have some kind of legitimacy. And if really all the court comes down to is Republicans nominated by Republicans, backed by Republican donors uh, who've just spent to block Democratic nominees, nominated by Democrats. Uh, you are just really going to p- completely politicize those results. We're at a place now you – know, it's interesting, Dolly, during the 2016 campaign, it's not just enough that the Republican nominee for president bashed you know, liberal nominees on the Supreme Court. You know, he said John Roberts mm-hmm. was like a left-wing candidate on the Supreme Court. And mm-hmm. John Roberts is the second most conservative chief justice of the Supreme Court in 150 years. So you know, the, 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 the sharp uh, polarization, the sharp politicization – that's really what we're seeing here. And I, and I do think that this nomination is a, a sad turning point in that. I, I want to ask one other doctrine question, and then I'll, I'll ask about the filibuster. But the doctrine question is this. Did, did you both hear what I heard? Uh, particularly, I'm thinking of an exchange, several exchanges over the course of the couple of days with Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, where Gorsuch, having said, I'm not going to opine, I'm just going to say, you know, it's case law, it's on the books, then I think very, very seriously departed from that and talked about Brown as being a seminal case, as being a case that corrected an historic injustice. He talked about loving in the same turns. And and then he would not do that uh, when the line of cases from Griswold to uh, Roe to Obergefell, he very much was willing to go beyond his own rules about not opining on precedent to say these were corrections of massive errors in the race context. In the privacy cases, he wouldn't do that. Let's listen to him going back and forth with Blumenthal, and then we can dive into what it all means. So Griswold, Senator, as you know, held that the 14th Amendment due process liberty clause provided a a right to married couples to the use of contraceptive devices in the privacy of their own home. And then Eisenstadt extended that to single persons. Right. Senator, those are precedents the United States Supreme Court. They've been settled for 50 years, nearly, in the case of Griswold. There are reliance interests that are obvious. They've been reaffirmed many times. I do not see a realistic possibility that a state would pass a law attempting to undo that or that a court of the United States would take such a challenge seriously. I have a very simple question for you. Do you agree with the result? Senator, I'll give you the same answer. 
again, I just want to tell you what Justice Alito said in response to that question. He said, very simply, talking about Eisenstadt, quote, I do agree yeah. with the result in Eisenstadt. It was, a, it was an application of equal protection principles. Well, I know what it and, was. And I'm asking you for a direct, clear, unequivocal answer. And, and, Senator, I'm trying to give it to you. And as I recall, Justice Alito said the same, same thing. That was really distressing because it seemed very Scalian to me. Uh, it seemed to follow this Scalian line of extremely stringent originalism, uh, whereby the Equal Protection Clause is read mostly to prohibit race discrimination, uh, formal state-sanctioned race discrimination, uh, and not much else. Um, which has been, I think, debunked by a lot of other originalists, Steve Calabrese um, uh, on the right, Akhil Amar on the left. This is not necessarily even a mainstream originalist line of thought, um, but it seemed to be in the tea leaves of what Gorsuch said uh, when he categorized the race cases as seminal and the sex discrimination cases and privacy cases as uh, precedents that exist. Yeah, you know, I, I agree, Mark. And I think uh, the three things I take away from this. First of all, we're, we've seen this uh, idea that Judge Gorsuch is kind of a selective originalist, super originalist about some parts of the Constitution, not so into the original text or meaning or spirit of the 14th Amendment, which is also part of the Constitution. Um, secondly, you know, I think something that didn't get enough attention at the hearings was Judge Gorsuch's book, his 2006 book, that is ostensibly about assisted suicide and euthanasia, but contains a, a large debunking of the modern Supreme Court due process jurisprudence, including an attack on loving itself, uh, at least the due process parts of loving. Uh, and so I think that uh, there should have been more discussion of what we could adduce from this philosophy about these issues of privacy and personal liberty uh, that appear uh, discussed at length in, in his book. Um, but I think the third thing is just the reality of confirmation politics. And there is this formula, I think, that uh, Republicans have settled on after Bork. And the formula is basically – uh, I'm not going to tell you about anything, but I'm going to totally insulate myself from a charge that I want to reverse Brown versus Board or Loving. And so I will stand here and say uh, in a completely unprincipled and no possible way to defend this way other than cr crude politics, 100 percent for Brown, 100 percent for Loving, not going to tell you about the rest of the stuff. And that's just a formula for confirmation that I think the Republicans have, have decided upon and uh, Judge Gorsuch ran that in the most – direct and, um, you know, harsh way he could. So, Ron, before we let you go, I think we need you to just tell us what to think, uh, because uh, everybody at Slate is in a complete hair-pulling, kicking, biting fight about whether this is the time to filibuster. And, you know, we can run through why that is, but I think that the outlines of the argument uh, seems to be why filibuster now. He's going to be on the court anyway. They're going to blow up the filibuster. We're going to be super sorry. Let's just do it for the next nominee when it really matters. I think that's basically the – Mark, is that the, the extent of the hair pulling and the kicking and the biting going on at Slate right now? Yes, 
That is, and I think within the Democratic Party as well, do they uh, force Republicans to nuke this filibuster for Supreme Court nominees now, or do they wait until, for instance, theoretically, Justice Kennedy steps down in two years and then use that as leverage to try to push a more moderate nominee? That's the big fight. Ron, tell us what we think. <laughs> so look, I, I think um, my thinking on this has evolved over the past several weeks. and. But to me, it comes down to this. First of all, I think Justice Kennedy may well leave this summer. And I think that, um, you know, we're talking about perhaps perhaps two nominees this year. Um, and, you know, the idea that we would not filibuster Judge Gorsuch because Mitch McConnell is threatening to take our right to filibuster away and save it for the next nominee – when Mitch McConnell will surely take our filibuster rights away, I just don't see what we get out of abstaining in that circumstance. Um, you know, this is a little bit like Charlie Brown in the football. Uh, you know, you know, he's he's uh, you know, Mitch McConnell sitting there saying, "Well, if you if you do this, I'm going to take it take your filibuster rights away." Uh, but he would just do that the next time anyway. And so, I think uh, it's time to call the question. It's time to uh, uh, take the strong stand. Uh, time to draw the line in the sand uh, and let the chips fall where they may because I I don't see any scenario. I mean, look, the only argument against filibustering Judge Gorsuch is if you really believed that when Justice Kennedy retired and we went to filibuster that nominee, that because we failed to filibuster Judge Gorsuch, Mitch McConnell would for some reason not go nuclear on uh, the court bending choice of Justice Kennedy's replacement. And I don't see any reason to believe that. And so given that, given the idea that uh, I don't think there could be a deal with McConnell or a deal that would be binding or any kind of long-term guarantee of the Democrats' rights, I don't really see why they shouldn't uh, use their full rights on this nomination given both what happened to Judge Garland and more importantly, uh, Judge Gorsuch's failure to answer questions in the confirmation process and failure to give Democrats any reassurance about his jurisprudence. Uh, I wish I could muster up a, a, a deep uh, disagreement with that, Ron. Uh, I, I have not got one. Mark, if you uh, want to take the other side and go, I would listen to it. <laughs> uh, no, I just kind of want to curl up in a ball and cry, actually. That's, that would be my preference at this point. I mean, I, <laughs> I agree with Ron. I think that it's a really stupid to hold Republicans uh, to any kind of promise, especially Mitch McConnell, who doesn't uh, believe in the concept of things like promises. Um, and I, I just don't know if I were a Democratic senator, frankly, what I would do right now. Uh, I don't think that Gorsuch is the worst possible judge that could have been put forward if somehow he wound up getting borked, which I don't really think could happen. But if he did, I think the next guy might be worse. And then they might go nuclear just to get, you know, Judge William Pryor on the bench. Uh, and that would be much more terrifying. Uh, so I, I think I agree with Ron. I'm glad that I am not a Democratic senator today and every day of my life, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens, but I will be uh, watching in abject terror. I want to I want to end by just noting that we managed to get through an entire podcast about the Gorsuch hearing uh, without mentioning mutton busting, skiing, basketball, fly fishing, more basketball, more mutton busting. If you feel the need to hear 
all you can hear about those manly, rugged sporting pursuits and their connection to jurisprudence, I uh, urge you to listen in uh, on the audio of the hearing. Mark Stern covers law in the courts for Slate. Ron Klain served as senior White House aide to both Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. It was such a pleasure to have both of you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Dahlia. And that is going to do it for today's special post-confirmation hearing for Neil Gorsuch edition of Amicus. We really look forward to hearing your thoughts now more than ever. Our email is amicus at slate.com. You can also leave us a comment at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Or if you're feeling very generous, a review on our page in the iTunes store. Just search for Amicus in the iTunes store and click on the ratings and reviews tab. Please remember, if you've missed any of our past episodes, including our conversation last week with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you can find all of them on Slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you will find transcripts there a few days after each podcast posts. If you are not a member, you really should be one. And it's a really good time to find out what it's all about. Slate currently has a special offer going where you can listen ad-free for 90 days with Slate Plus in the new Slate iOS app. You'll also get extended episodes in an ad-free reading experience. Download the app today at slate.com app. Thank you, as ever, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Camille Mott is our intern. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you next week for another edition of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.